Hi, I'm John Foster, and this is Left to Burn. Northern Ireland has been in the news recently, and as usual, that's bad news for the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland has been without a government since elections in May of this year gave Sinn Féin a plurality. Under the current power-sharing system, this result gives them the right to appoint the first minister of the regional government. Northern Ireland has been run under the auspices of a power-sharing arrangement since the 1998 Good Friday Agreements ended nearly three decades of brutal, low-intensity conflict. Northern Ireland's government, with its center of the Stormont Estate in Belfast, has been led by the Democratic Unionist Party, the largest of the so-called Loyalist parties, in the 20 years since the signing of the Good Friday Agreements. In a region whose politics are characterized by intense and conflicting intercommunal relationships, the power-sharing arrangement has always been at least slightly dysfunctional. Now, for the first time, the DUP is no longer the largest party in the region. Their resistance to serving in a government in which they are the junior partner to Sinn Féin is threatening the long-term stability of a system which, flawed as it is, has prevented the return to the bad old days of intercommunal violence. The politics of Northern Ireland are in a stalemate. This, in itself, is not novel. The politics of the region have always been fraught and have only been slightly less so since the advent of power sharing between the mostly Catholic nationalist community and the almost exclusively Protestant loyalists. Ulster, Ireland's northernmost region, had been a center of Catholic power, which became an issue during the Europe-wide struggle between the power of the established Catholic Church and the rising Protestant movement. In an effort to assert greater control over Ireland, Ulster was subjected to a process that amounted to what we would call today ethnic cleansing. Much of the Catholic population of Ulster was forced off the land to be replaced by Presbyterian Scots yeomen who, it was expected, would be more sympathetic to the desires of the British crown, in addition to being more acceptable in terms of religion. The divisions between Catholic and Protestant, Irish national and British loyalist, would roil the politics of Ireland and the United Kingdom for the next four and a half centuries. Protestants were preeminent in Ireland as a whole until the 1920s, when Ireland won a degree of independence in the course of a protracted and bloody rebellion against British rule. When Ireland finally achieved at least partial liberation from Great Britain in 1922, six of the nine counties of Ulster were retained by Great Britain in order to provide a sort of homeland for the Protestant majority which existed in most but not all of the relevant areas. Down, Derry, Tyrone, Antrim, Armagh, and Fermanagh were broken off to form the statelet of Northern Ireland, which continues to exist to this day. Conflict was built into the political institutions that arose in the wake of partition from the outset. Catholics composed between 30 and 40 percent of the population and were a majority in some areas, specifically Derry City. The Protestant majority, jealous of its privileges and worried about the possibility of Catholic demographic expansion, created a government that systematically privileged the Protestant Unionist community in political and economic terms. Catholic political power was limited by gerrymandered electoral districts, especially in Derry City, and the Catholic nationalist population was systematically excluded from economic opportunities and development. As demands and agitation for civil rights emerged within the Catholic communities in the second half of the 1960s, Catholic areas were increasingly subjected to attacks by Protestant mobs abetted by the police and security forces. Anti-Catholic violence eventually led to the reformation of the Irish Republican Army, the guerrilla organization whose forces had been responsible for winning freedom for the Republic of Ireland in the 1920s. The result was a spiraling pattern of violence, as paramilitary organizations from both the nationalist and loyalist communities engaged in a pattern of tit-for-tat atrocities, with the British security forces aiding the Protestant side. The conflict took on greater momentum in the wake of the killing of 13 unarmed Catholics by British paratroopers at the end of a civil rights demonstration in Derry in January 1972. The event, 
known ever since as Bloody Sunday, galvanized the Irish Republican Army. Prior to the events of Bloody Sunday, the IRA had split into two, the leftist official and the more conservative provisional wing. Both groups were on the verge of becoming moribund by the early 1970s, and neither could muster much more operational wherewithal than that needed to occasionally equip each other's activists. Bloody Sunday killings breathed new life into the movement, and Northern Ireland paid a price in blood. In the following three decades, more than 3,500 people would be killed. The 1998 Good Friday Agreements mostly put an end to the conflict, at least in its armed form, although isolated elements of the terrorist organizations on both sides persisted. The danger that they could pose was made brutally clear only months after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, when an IRA splinter group calling itself the Real IRA detonated a bomb in the market town of Omaha in August 1998 that killed 29 people and injured between 220 and 300. But the momentum of peace was not to be derailed. Although residual suspicion between the two communities remained, people in Northern Ireland had grown tired of the conflict and were ready to see the formation of institutions that would normalize political life in the region. Still, in many respects, political life in post-Troubles Northern Ireland retained many of the characteristics of the pre-Good Friday situation. Although the paramilitaries mostly decommissioned their arms, communal voting patterns remained much the same, with the Protestant community retaining a political advantage based on its superior demographic position. But this situation has been changing. The demographic balance in the region is shifting, with Catholics forming an ever-larger proportion of the population. Sinn Féin, the leading party in the nationalist community, has diversified its political position. Sinn Féin began as the political wing of the Irish Republican Army. It came to prominence in the 1980s when a new generation of IRA militants, such as Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, answered the question of the ballot or the bullet with a resounding yes to both. For years, Sinn Féin was mostly a one-trick pony, representing the political program of the IRA, which was centered on removing British influence in Northern Ireland the reunification of the six Ulster counties with the Republic of Ireland. In recent times, Sinn Féin has reconfigured itself into a party of the moderate left, a move which has solidified its support in Northern Ireland and lifted its profile in the Republic. Indeed, Sinn Féin has now risen to become the second largest party in the Irish Republic, challenging the hegemony of Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle, the traditionally dominant parties in the Republic, both of which are center-right in political coloration. In both Northern Ireland and the Republic, this has led to political complications. The traditionally dominant parties in the Irish Republic constitute more networks of notables than representing distinct political or ideological colorations. They continue to resist joining coalitions, including Sinn Féin, in part because of its long-term connections to the IRA, although the leftist tone of its policies is probably of similar importance as a factor. Meanwhile, in the North, Sinn Féin has maintained its support base, while that of the DUP has declined somewhat. At least in part, this is a consequence of younger voters in Northern Ireland having less intense connections to communally-based identities. An increasing proportion of the population of Northern Ireland was born very late in or after the end of the Troubles. The big winner in terms of seats gained in the May elections was the Alliance, a formerly unionist but now non-sectarian party that has declared itself neutral on the question of union with Great Britain. While Sinn Féin and the Alliance have adjusted their politics to account for changes in Northern Irish society, the DUP is still very much the party of conservative sectionalism. Lately, too, the DUP has been caught up in the issue of the protocol, the unfinished business of the Brexit agreement, which seeks to preserve the political gains of the Good Friday Agreement in terms of the soft border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, as well as the economic benefits to Northern Ireland of connection with the EU, once again via the Republic. Northern Ireland lags behind the rest of the UK in terms of economic development, employment, and income. 
Negotiations between the EU and successive Tory governments over the protocol have been fraught since making Brexit uniform across the UK has been an article of faith with the Tories as part of their connection with their populist base. This has led to a conundrum. The EU is resistant to allowing any unilateral changes to the protocol. Much as the Tories would like to accede to the desires of the loyalist community and their own populist base, they need to come to some sort of modus operandi with the EU, since the latter is by far Great Britain's largest export market. For the leaders of the loyalist community, the protocol and the soft border with the Republic are the narrow edge of a wedge, which perhaps might lead to the formation of a 32-county Irish Republic. That, combined with the rising political profile of Sinn Féin on both sides of the Irish border, has resulted in the DUP taking an intransigent stance with regard to resolving the impasse at Stormont, as well as pushing aggressively for the scrapping of the protocol. Ironies abound. Not the least of these is the fact that not being in power gives Sinn Féin an inbuilt excuse for not having to undertake the more leftist implications of their program. More importantly, while the DUP may worry about the threat of a referendum on unification, the prospect of one at this point is remote. While Sinn Féin is rhetorically committed to reunification, the fact of the matter is that such an event would result in enormous short-term costs on both sides of the border. Much as reunification functions as a bogey in the unionist community, the continuation of the division of Ireland plays an important role in maintaining the power of leftist inflected political nationalism in both Northern Ireland and the Republic, and is likely to continue on as a political basis for the foreseeable future. Now I'm going to bring in my podcasting partner, Josh White. I hear you're on the road in Plymouth, scenic Plymouth. That I am, for better and for worse. I've never been to Plymouth. I've heard it's a nice town, but my experience with that part of the UK is pretty limited. So the talk these days around the UK is the failure to form a government in Northern Ireland. The DUP is refusing to form a government. With Sinn Féin, this would be the first time ever that they would be in some sort of minority capacity, so they would have to accept the leader of Sinn Féin as first minister, which not surprisingly they are disinclined to do. But they're also hung up on the whole protocol thing as they've been for a while. Is there any prospect that any move is going to be made on this? Is the DUP just, are they playing for time? What's their end game with this? They want the protocol scrapped and they want a stronger land border with the Irish Republic. The Tory government wants to give them that, but that is not going to solve any of the problems in Northern Ireland. It may end one standoff and start a new standoff. And it's going to create a whole bunch of other problems uh, for Northern Ireland in terms of trade, in terms of what's going on on the border. It's very far from any kind of solution for anyone, even though the DUP supports it for its own ideological and historical ends. Yeah, there's an odd sort of sense in which the DUP has somewhat switched places with Sinn Féin. For a long time, Sinn Féin had a very firm support base that would back them for whatever their policy was going to be, because they weren't really going to be in power. I mean, even in the power-sharing executive, they were always going to play second fiddle to the DUP, which had, a, it seemed, a locked-in majority. Now it seems as if the electoral calculus has changed a little bit in Northern Ireland, as it has in the Republic. I mean, this is a very weird time for the Republic, where Sinn Féin, which probably is the only political party in Europe, as far as I can tell, that has a significant political stake in two separate sovereign states, or what have you. I mean, obviously, Northern Ireland isn't sovereign except in the sense that it's part of the United Kingdom. But in neither case are any of the other parties inclined to share power with Sinn Féin. So the DUP, not surprisingly, didn't like sharing power with Sinn Féin to begin with, but certainly doesn't want to share power with Sinn Féin in a situation in which Sinn Féin is the leading 
actor. And in The Republic, Fine Gael and Fine Foyle are also both very strongly disinclined to share power with Sinn Féin for many of the same reasons, although the political architecture, the political environment of the South is much different than it is in, in Northern Ireland. The, the problem, it seems to me, for the DUP is that the Tory government, much as they would like to help out the DUP, I mean, they always have, now has to engage in this calculus about whose opinion they care about more, right? And much as they may talk about disliking the EU, the Brexit, what have you, trade with the EU is worth a lot more than the support of the DUP, unfortunately for the DUP, maybe also unfortunately for Northern Ireland. I mean, Northern Ireland is economically blighted, I think is the fairest way to put it. They're dead last in most of the major categories in terms of employment, productivity, however you measure it, they're, they're down at the very bottom of the table. So this is a very complicated situation because closing off or making more firm the land border between Northern Ireland and the Republic is the kind of thing which is likely to have negative consequences on the economic situation of a region that's already fairly weak. But from the Tory perspective, much as they might give out in some other direction, they can't afford to alienate the EU because that's really got to be their major trading partner. It's not going to be us. It's not going to be China. It's got to be the EU. So they've got to find a way to make the protocol work. I mean, because if they don't, the inland consequences, so to speak, for the Tories get much worse. Yeah, absolutely. And one wonders why exactly they are toying with the protocol at all and from that perspective. But yeah, the last several years, the Tory party has really put their electoral strategy above economic policy, especially in the short term. They've taken a very short-termist stance and we're all paying the price for that. And the Northern Irish are going to pay some of the harshest prices for that in the UK sphere, if you want to call it that. Yeah, it really seems as if the Tories have a lot of, I mean, they have a lot of problems right now of the kind that dumping Liz Truss is not going to fix. They've realized that certain very ideological moves aren't going to work, but their economic ideas are so hooked into this neoliberal orthodoxy about reducing services. They've moved off, it seems to me, uh, their, their whole uh, idea about tax cuts for the top end of the income distribution. But that still leaves them in a position that's likely to cause the economy of the UK to shrink rather than to grow. And Northern Ireland is going to be hit worse by that, you would tend to think, since their economic situation is already not very good. And so the problem really now, I mean, this is an ironic thing, because we were talking weeks ago about uh, the problems of the Labour Party, which are legion. But looked at in a certain way, all Keir Starmer has to do is keep his mouth shut and just back away. There's a uh, adage in politics about, and I'm, I, I wish I could remember offhand who said this, but that if your opponent is in the process of committing suicide, the best idea is just to let him do it. Uh, and that seems to have been what the Labour Party has been doing recently, that instead of getting out with some dumb ideas, they've at least been keeping their mouths shut and, and letting the Tories corner the market on dumb ideas. Yeah, that that's Starmer's whole strategy, effectively. And that, that was kind of his strategy when he was in Corbyn's cabinet as well, except his opponent was Corbyn. He was just kind of lying low, making very strategic statements here and there, but generally being as inoffensive as possible <laughs> to his supporters. And he's playing the same kind of game with the Tories. And right now it's working out because, as I said before, Liz Truss didn't just trip over her own foot. She basically set herself on fire. So 
it's going to be hard for them to rebuild from the impact of trust. And who knows, maybe the DUP will be in a position once again in a couple of years to play Kingmaker. But it looks less likely than in the past because of how badly they played their cards. And the domestic Protestant vote, I say domestic from the Northern Irish perspective, the Protestant vote seems more fractious than ever. You know, they're facing opposition from the hard right and from softer unionist parties at the same time. So that's a bad place for them to be. Yeah, there's an irony here, too, in the sense that what Sinn Féin mostly needs to do is just lay back a little. They've been out in the media complaining that the DUP and its its allies have been engaged in scaremongering about the protocol, which is true. But there's a sense in which, I mean, Daniel Finn made the point in the article that he published about Northern Ireland a few months ago in the New Left Review that one sort of advantage that Sinn Féin has had in Northern Ireland is that they don't really have to come through on any of their political promises or they haven't had to because they can always just say, well, you know, we'd like to do X, Y, and Z, but unfortunately the terrible people in the Democratic Unionist Party are preventing us from doing so. But trust us, that's what we really want, so please vote for us. In a certain sense, this position is somewhat advantageous for Sinn Féin in the respect that they still don't have to come through on any of their electoral programs, but they can get out there and give out that they're for certain kinds of social measures without actually having to, to figure out how those could be achieved in terms of the actual economic situation of Northern Ireland. This is a very similar position of convenience that the SNP enjoys. I think it's even more convenient for the SNP because they could basically say that any unpopular policies are the fault of the English and there's some reason for that while taking credit for any kind of positive news that comes up. And the Sinn Féin can play that game up to a point. And I'd say the biggest problem for Sinn Féin might be voter turnout. You know, there could be fatigue, you know, because they had an election in May. And if there's another election in January, will the base turn out? And it's a winter election, which can be bad in terms of like working class voters turning out. Middle class voters always dominate anyway. So just to sort of frame things going forward, especially from the perspective of the Tories, when is the next obligatory general election got to be for the UK? It's sometime in, I think I read December 2024? Uh, the latest it, it could be is January 2025, but it will most likely be in 2024 at some point. Yeah, that's just under the five-year rule, basically. They could technically call one at any point, but they're not going to. In a way, it works better from the Tory perspective. To, to push the election back for a lot of reasons, one being that currently their popularity is extremely low for obvious reasons, but also a lot of things can happen between now and then, you know, I mean, there's that story about the guy who's, who insults the king and is sentenced to be executed. And he says, give me a, give me a year and I can teach your horse to speak. And someone asked him, why'd you do that? And he said, well, many things can happen in a year. The king may die or I may die or the horse may speak. And the fact of the matter is that the Tories may stumble onto a non-losing strategy at some point in the next two years. They haven't done it yet, but a lot of things can happen and they could hardly be at a worse pass in 18 months in terms of what their popularity is like. So they might as well push the election down the road and try and throw some things against the wall and see what sticks. Give Keir Starmer a chance to trip over his own feet, which he certainly has, has shown a capacity to do. Yeah, that's definitely what the Tories are hoping to achieve. It's very, very clear to me that the contradictions they're facing are so immense. It's hard to see. It's hard to see how they could possibly resolve these things. 
the economic crisis that we're facing is pretty grave and it's hard to see how they can resolve it without hitting one part of their base and they've already hit parts of their base repeatedly whether it's interest rate hikes or the pensions crisis or inflation there's there's very little room to maneuver on this yeah especially when you're working in the shackles of this neoliberal idea that which is sold as a rising tide lifts all boats when in fact the tide they're creating is likely to swamp a lot of the middle class, even though it might actually turn out to be advantageous for people up toward the top end of the income distribution. But another interesting dimension about this is that one of the things that the DUP seems to be really agitated about, and which a lot of people in the loyalist community, so-called in Northern Ireland, are agitated about, is the prospect that now, given the rise in Sinn Féin's political profile on both sides of the border, that reunification might be in the offing, or there might be a referendum at least. But the irony there is that if you're living in the Republic, why would you want that? I mean, then you're in the position that West Germany was in when reunification happened in the early 90s. You know, you have this region that has a lot of economic problems that you're now on the hook for. And if you're a politician or just a citizen in the Republic, why would you want that? Likewise, and this was pointed out in the Finn article too, and I think that this is a, I think this is quite a good point. If you're living in Northern Ireland and you're in the nationalist community, you might think sort of abstractly, well, 32 county republic, whatever, that would be great. But the fact of the matter is, the minute that happens, your healthcare costs are likely to go up pretty dramatically. Your education costs are likely to go up pretty dramatically. Your childcare costs are likely to go up pretty dramatically. So weirdly enough, from the perspective of the nationalist community, irrespective of Sinn Féin's promises on either side of the border and Sinn Féin's project of national reunification or whatever, it's actually better for most people on both sides if it doesn't happen, at least until, I mean, until such time in the indeterminate future when Northern Ireland actually gets its economic shit together. Yeah, absolutely. In West Germany, it cost them immense amounts of resources to integrate East Germany. And it's still very debatable how much that was a success, given the state of East Germany today and the uh, the problems that they face. And frankly, the Irish Republic does not have the kind of economy that West Germany had. It's a very fragile, low-growth economy with serious problems of its own. And its main strategy for the last 40 years is basically to turn itself into a kind of financial centre, which is a nice euphemism for tax haven. It's hard to see how the integration would go well, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. Northern Irish public opinion is shifting in a, what you might call, nationalist Republican direction. It's very slight, it's gradual, but it is happening. And the Catholic communities have demographic change on their side, so to speak. Um, it's also true that public opinion can, can be very fickle and it can take all kinds of changes that can't be easily predicted. You know, and the politics of the status of Northern Ireland, not just controversial, but complex, you know, because the opposition to a, a united island isn't just simply a unionist position. It's also a different kind of nationalist position as well. You have people who want Northern Ireland to break away from the UK and not join Ireland, for example. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a winning strategy, but but you're definitely right that there are people like that. If you talk about things in terms of the nationalist community or the unionist community or, or what have you, that basically plasters over a lot of differences and variations within those communities. And if you look at why people are voting for Sinn Féin, 
I think it's at least arguable that a lot of them are voting for their social program, for their program with respect to making Northern Ireland as it exists a more equitable society, rather than for some sort of abstract desire to be part of a 32 county republic. I mean, that's one of those things where it's a kind of a pie in the sky, except there is no pie. Like there really is no upside necessarily in the short term to Northern Ireland joining with the Republic. And your point about the Federal Republic of Germany is really absolutely correct. It cost them fabulous sums of money to reintegrate the so-called Neue Bundesländer into the federal structure of Germany. It's still an economically depressed area with the exception of Berlin, Brandenburg. It's the heartland, or at least a lot of it is, of populist movements like the IFD. And there is a lot of far-right recalcitrant political opinion that's concentrated in the former East German states. And I mean, imagine what that would look like in terms of Northern Ireland. If Northern Ireland should, in some, under whatever circumstances, become part of the Republic of Ireland, then you have the former unionists or whoever, you know, however you want to characterize them, then as uh, an intransigent, dissatisfied minority intent on making things not work. And once again, there's no upside in the short to medium term of reintegrating or of integrating Northern Ireland into the Irish Republic. If I was running the Republic of Ireland, I would just, I would think to myself, Great Britain, you are absolutely welcome to it. Because it's just, it's a problem for you that would be a bigger problem for us if we were then in the situation of trying to integrate it into our national structures. I, I strongly suspect that's what some Irish politicians think, but will never say. And it's a real tragedy because, of course, a united island is the historically just outcome. It is the thing that should happen. It's just the economic and political fallout for, for Irish people would be quite significant. And it would play out for decades. You can weigh these things up. You could argue that maybe maybe that's worth the price from a kind of a hardline Republican perspective. But you are going to face the problem of what the hell is going to happen with those loyalists that are left over. Yeah. One of the sort of interesting things about it, I mean, it's funny that we're talking about this in terms of the just results, since obviously the issues that we want to be fundamentally concerned with are economic more than cultural legitimacy or, or nationalist, whatever. But one sort of interesting thing about Northern Ireland, it, you know, if you read Michael Farrell's seminal book, The Orange State, Michael Farrell was a member of People's Democracy, sort of Northern Irish leftist, really interesting guy. He wrote this book, The Orange State, the substance of which, I mean, had a lot of interesting stuff in it, but one of the continuing narratives in the book was how periodically the professional middle class in the nationalist community went to their sort of orange counterparts and said, well, look, you know, if you'll just let us be part of the economic development of this statelet, we can all make things work because we have common interests, right? And invariably, the orange side was like, no, you know, we want to limit it to our own community. So, I mean, the question is, like, is there is there a point at which Ireland, North and South can get past the national question or these cultural questions and try and get more focused on a political, on a on an economic organization that's more just to the people there in general, not just to the people in the upper end of the income distribution. I think that's possible, but it's it's very difficult to get there from where we currently are, uh, not least because the 
the remnants of the so-called orange state are, you know, structurally have entrenched an intercommunal tension. It's kind of comparable to the setup in Bosnia, actually. I mean, Bosnia is far worse, but, you know, where you have kind of an, an embedded structure of ethnic, <laughs> ethno-linguistic grievances, let's say, in the Bosnian case. Here it's more uh, ethno-religious. But there are political parties that favour those kinds of outcomes. They're just quite marginal, like People Before Profit, which I think is probably one of the, the best organisations in Northern Ireland, preaching neither orange nor green, but red. But how do you get there? Yeah, I mean, this is, in a way, it's kind of similar to, in terms of the the voting behaviour, or the voting motivations for voting for this or that party. I vote for the Democrats, and it's not because I don't understand that the Democrats are the left wing of finance capital. It's because they're the people who have a chance to be in power of all the non-psychotic people in the country, and that's only about 49% of the people here. But I think that if you look at Northern Ireland, it's quite possible that people might think to themselves, well, I think people before profit would be a great idea in theory, but they'd have to get a lot closer to actually being in power. I don't want to cast a vote for that that turns out to be in practice or in objective terms a vote for the Democratic Unions or for their even loopier right-wing allies. Yeah, quite. I imagine that there is a lot of people who may not be particularly avowedly connected to Sinn Féin, but vote for them because they, they fear the DUP. Equally, there's probably a lot of people who are doing the same thing with the DUP, vice versa, you know. And again, there's a lot of complexity in this. You know, there'll be people who who are backing the DUP because they favour the very socially reactionary agenda and favour a kind of economic populism. You know, it may not even be particularly attached to the idea of a, a united kingdom, but they are where they are. Yeah, and that's why we're in this stalemate. Yeah, I mean, I, I that's think that's exactly right, and I don't see any obvious way out of it, at least in the short term. Anyway, well, thanks, everybody, for listening. That's about all we've got for this time. We'll be back in two weeks with more chat about what's happening in Europe.